Welcome to Trending in Education. This is Mike Palmer. I'm joined today by Jim Hollis, who's the founder of the Calculus Roundtable. I'm a big fan of calculus, and I'm also a big fan of what Jim is doing. Jim, welcome to Trending in Education. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. There's not too many times I get to say I'm a fan of calculus or a fan of the calculus, uh, but I am, and I remember it back. Shout out to Cliff Hordlow, my math teacher extraordinaire, taught me calculus in high school. I was lucky enough to go that route. You founded something really interesting. It's not just about calculus. It's about mentorship, connecting into the community. I'd rather hear it from you than from me. Can you catch us up on your origin story as a learning professional? Great, great, sure. We were just talking about calculus and our love for it. And I started in education as a researcher. My background is in economics. And I started looking at the cost of inequitable schools and did mm. a lot of research in the, a lot of wonky stuff in that area. Yeah. I'm like, what am I doing here getting a nosebleed in this ivory tower? I really wanted to work with kids, didn't I? That's what I thought I was going to be doing. Mm. And some of the data that we were collecting at the time in the, you know, the San Francisco Bay Area, in fact, in the nine counties that surround the Bay Area, at the time, there were less than 100 African-Americans enrolled in a calculus class. Wow. And it's one of those, wow, but surprising and not surprising at the same time. And even though I love calculus and higher math, and I think it's important, I recognize, as we all do, that not everyone has that pathway. But what that told me, mm. more a barometer on the school system mm -hmm. than what's on the student. Like, why? Are there so few students in these higher level classes? And you have to know somebody to know somebody to know somebody. Yeah. The, really, the, it's one of those first glass ceilings of what knowledge is held away from people. So mm -hmm. I thought about that as a great indicator as an econ major of like, look, if we can change this, this opens up a lot of possibilities. And that data point in itself made me see a lot of the inequities in schools of how kids get to higher level courses. Yeah. And not being a, an educator by nature or nurture even really. But I remembered when I went to high school, my parents had just gotten a divorce and we moved from the Bay Area to Seattle. And I'd always been a nerd, which I still am proudly. And I, you know, my mother couldn't take me to the school. She's like, take the bus. Here's your transcript. You're old enough to go by yourself. Yeah. And I went up there and I never thought about this until I got into education. But I gave my counselor my schedule. He wrote down the classes. He handed back to me and there was no math. Hmm. I'm 14 years old. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I think you made a mistake. There's no math on it. And he said something that really changed my life and got me to this point here, which is, Oh, you have enough math to graduate now. You don't, you don't need any more math. Mm, mm. And he, you know, I never, I was like, nah, you better put something on there because my mom will never yes. believe you. Right. My mom, even for me. Right. By that age, I was, I was a serious mathlete. I was, I was, cause like extracurriculars, I was like, wait, I could have more math. I could do more math by sticking around longer, you know? So it does, it does take all kinds, but it is interesting that just the contrast in terms of, for me, the opportunity for like enrichment, like doing extra, whereas for you, they're like, you've met the requirements. No more math you, for you. Yes, yes. And he thought he was doing me a favor in yeah. some way. So it does bring up 
one of the areas that I really am passionate about, which is the the prejudice of low expectations of all kinds mm -hmm. of students mm -hmm. and how, you know, that's why we call the organization Calculus Roundtable. It's not necessarily about every student learning calculus, but it's about raising that bar. Yeah. Because as we know, students will achieve to the exact bar that adults set for them. Mm -hmm. Now, we try to raise that bar up, and we've been somewhat successful over the years, hopefully said. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And through some tumultuous times as well over the last yes. few years, your model is interesting in that there's peer-to-peer -peer learning. You're also connecting with a broader cross-section of students. Can you explain a little more how the roundtable works? Yes, sure. You know, it works. Everything we do is data-driven. And because I'm a nerd geek around data. And an economist, too. So it's like, <laughs> like it is all. And and I know about the calculus in it, it does make sense as a field because there's plenty of calculus in economics. Yeah. yeah very much is. And, you know, students need to sort of see themselves in the work, not just drill and kill, as they call it. And having mentors and older people who are within that same field who look like the kids we serve yeah, gives them a recognition of their own confidence. Like, oh. I can, if, if Reggie, and it's not like the vice president of Google, it's Brian. Like I know right. Brian. Brian's a cool dude. I can, be, right. you know, so yeah. make yeah. those personal relationships, which is what you learn in grad school really anyway. Don't tell anybody, right? It's like right. how to connect with people and keep those connections around you. Mm -hmm. Build the ecosystem necessary for kids to really achieve. And the data shows this, that of kids of color, really all kids, but particularly kids of color have a teacher of color before the fourth grade, right. they have a 30% chance higher of graduating from college just from that. And mm. really, when you think about it, it's not just kids of color. We bring that up because it's a data point, but why do, why do people become dentists? Because their uncle was a dentist. Or right. Like they're familiar with that environment and mm. to bring that to underserved kids is the goal, the mission, the joy that I have in this organization and to see kids you know, we took some kids who were in Richmond, California, who were from the hood, yeah, deep in the hood and from the public housing projects. And we have a program called Think Like a Game Designer, mm. where they actually work with video game designers and test things and go through the critical thinking. And we bring the math and, oh, that's the XY coordinate you have to move your character, blah, blah, blah. And we took them, the video folks came to Richmond and did a workshop with the kids, which they love. And then about four months later, we went to San Francisco to the headquarters. And I used to get goosebumps thinking about this. The kids were like, oh, is that a, not only had they not been to San Francisco, they were like, oh, is that an elevator? These are middle school kids. I've never been in an elevator before. Wow. Yeah. And those experiences, you can't get in a classroom. You can't mm -hmm. need to have an extended learning environment, not a field trip, right. but that you're actually learning in that other environment. That's well, if you want to be a video game designer, you got to know how to ride an elevator. So let's do it together. It's our fears, you know, so not only are they learning X, Y coordinates and, and slopes and, you know, introductory calculus yeah. formulas. They're learning life experiences with people who look like them, who they trust, 
who they feel comfortable with. So, you know, having that whole environment around underserved kids, whether they be black, white, Latino, poor kids, yep. Native American communities, we're finding that putting those things in front of kids, raising the bar beyond what they, their parents or their teachers think they could do, right, removes the pressure from actually, oh, well, you, it's just, you know, you don't have to, you know, this, it's just that, you know, right. but oh, the whole, we were talking about gamification and we, you and I are the last analog generation. These kids live in that world way more than adults give them credit for. And they're in a competitive goal oriented, right. mini certification. I, I sat in, I was at a, I was at the ISTE conference. I sat in on like a e-gaming match. And I was like, I can't believe this is actually like, it's like you're living in science fiction, but like the level <laughs> to which right. video gaming is actually kind of like just baked into high school culture, which does make sense. And then what I love about what you're putting out there is that it addresses the relevance problem for math. I had great teachers, great math teachers growing up. They were able to connect math to real life problems and seeing what I've seen from your organization, it does feel like you're very much founded really with that in mind. Can, can you expand on that a little bit? Yes, uh, you picked, that's great. I'm glad you said that because that is the heart of Calculus Roundtable. And really, I got the epiphany hit me and sort of uh, bought my first house in sort of a transitional neighborhood. And I remember you know, these, the, the big old hoopty cars that would come through the neighborhood with the speakers blasting. And then, then you look at the people in there and it's like these two 19 year old Latino kids. And you're like, that kid is probably dropped out of high school or got suspended. And he's got $60,000 worth of electronics in his car. Yeah. Like where are the recognition for those kids who are dumb, they're bored. Right. right? And they know, they already know a lot of math and science. Yeah. And uh, categorizes that. Those hydraulics take some serious engineering. Uh, serious engineering. This, and you could get a job at McDonnell Douglas doing the same kind of thing, right? So a lot of it is, you know, not teaching kids hard stuff, but making them aware of the math and science they already know mm -hmm. and putting it out. One of our first programs that we did with students was in a public housing project. And we were building roller coasters online and the kids would sort of build the tracks and then de decorate the cars. And it was an online app that we had. And not one kid got through that by building the cars and didn't crash at the end. You get the same response from third graders or high school. Oh, Mr. Oh, Mr. Hall, let me try that one more time. Well, I think your mass was a little too much. What's that? Oh, well, that's how much character you have. Well, maybe your velocity was too, what's that? You know how when you're on yeah. a skate going down here? So mm -hmm. while they're doing the fun activities, mm. our staff are behind them supporting the math and science that's happening in real time. Yeah. So we can make a connection to it. And before we would leave every day, okay, this is a physics class that we're doing. Okay. What, what's that? I thought this was roller coasters. Yes. It's the same thing. Right. And there, when they went home to their parents or their parents picked them up, what were you working on today? Oh, physics. What? And then they realized this sort of like, oh, I'm actually doing this. Mm -hmm. And that level, even at the 
beginning level, the level of confidence that they have is it changes their whole attitude towards math and science. Yeah. It's almost the in-group, out-group thing. You know, even the whole, you know, Barbie, which I still haven't seen the Barbie movie. I hear, <laughs> I hear great things. But the whole Barbie saying math is hard, you know, like the implicit low expectations that you're describing, like how do we start to flip the model in interesting right. ways? The other element of flipping it is the peer-to-peer -peer and, you know, less of a, I still remember back teaching at Kaplan, one of the nice things was like, I wasn't grading people. I was trying to help them perform and, you know, knowing when to help and also when to get out of the way. Right. It does seem like that's kind of baked into how you operate. Can you describe how the team works together and how you, you in some yeah. ways, I think you give students some agency in the process. You really have done your homework. This is very good. I'm taking you on the road with me. I, you know, this goes to the cultural competency level that we bring into our work. And it's often difficult for educators, you know, with history, oh, we can just do a book on this person or do this. Or even in science, they might say, well, here are the famous scientists in African-American or Latino scientists. And you're supposed to look at that one person and sort of see yourself in them. But the real competency is when you see yourself doing it with your peers in real time. Mm -hmm. And I read a wonderful book you might have heard of, a What What Would Google Say? Mm -hmm. I think it was called. And, and just thinking about all the things that they do in Google, that if you did it in high school, you would be suspended. Like <laughs> working in small groups, moving over here, making decisions on your own, not looking yeah. for... So mm. having that environment, and kids don't know how to study anymore in groups. Mm. So that's a, so another skill of like working together and not and celebrating failure. You know, mm. that the idea of math and science is getting it wrong 20 times to get it right one time. So that is part of the journey and making that fun and celebrating failure in creative ways, asking open-ended questions that don't, that everyone can answer mm -hmm. at the same time, regardless, and not sort of you know, some of those techniques that came from the space race of like, who can raise your hand the highest first? Right, right. Know everything so we can separate you out mm -hmm. and isolate everybody else, but not having, you know, sort of the group coming up with decisions together gives them an ownership of the knowledge. It's not somebody else's knowledge, it's their knowledge. Yeah. It's interesting when you're talking to, it does make me think about how the technology to, to deliver online is changing and yes. you know ai is coming online good job by us we made it this far without talking about ai but you know <laughs> it is 2023 so we have to do it you know it's another case where i imagine on the one hand it's new and i'm not sure how i use math but at the same time you know all the skills whether it's prompt engineering or even some of the research I, i've heard that the large language models are actually kind of terrible at math, which was also, you know, I, full disclosure, I'm rooting for hashtag team human. So I was a little bit happy <laughs> to hear that they had some trouble with that. But a lot of like the AI engineer roles and the really emerging skills, I imagine it's pretty easy to bring the relevance of math into conversations about the future of work. But, but I'd love to hear a little of your thinking on this. I, I'm still grappling with it myself. You know, I'm literally taking a class right now at Stanford teaching with AI and I'm learning a little bit, but I learned even more from my 11 year old 
twin boys. <laughs> yes. Oh, and I'm old enough. Yes. Oh yes. You have a control group and an experimental. <laughs> he made too much. <laughs> That's the truth. But, but seriously, you know, I'm old enough to remember when computers started in the classroom and there used to be a computer room. Yeah. And, right. And the idea that, oh, this is going to ruin education. This is going to be terrible. Kids are just going to take, you know, copy things over and, and, you know, these are just tools. And I knew as sort of a bridge person between the typewriter and the computer mm-hmm. that like, this is just, this is not going to change anything, but make things faster and make me think more creatively. Right. And a lot of the adults couldn't see that. And I think as I watch my boys go through AI things and, yeah. and, and build content, build their own movies online based on their own imagination. Mm-hmm. We, yeah, we consumed content. They're creating content, so I think that it really will. You know, the mystery is for us old folks who don't know any better. But I think for the younger generation, they'll figure out a way to use it as the tool. It is. so I have a bright. Few, I I'm not a uh, doom and gloom when it comes to AI changing everything without creating something new. I think it will change everything, but I think it will create new things that we can't even really imagine right now. Yeah, I really like where you're going with that. I talked about it as a maker's mindset. Had a guy on the show, Lauren Buckman, wrote a book called Make to Know, which was very much about if I can't actually make it, there's a different kind of understanding you have when you're actually able to make something. And it's now connecting the dots to the roller coaster. You need calculus to make a roller coaster. So it's all... It's all coming together here for me, Jim, which is good. Hopefully our listeners are enjoying it as well. But but as you look out ahead for Calculus Roundtable, the other thing that's striking me about it is it does seem like this is a pretty replicable concept in terms of rolling out this type of community engagement slash educational initiative. Are there messages or lessons maybe to be shared out to other folks who are thinking about really addressing some of the things like what you're trying to address with calculus roundtable? Sure. I mean, I, my background, I mentored under a Robert Moses, who's a famous educator came out of the civil rights movement and had a program was involved with algebra, the algebra project Hmm. using a lot of the same concepts of breaking it down to simple language that you can speak that uses common phrases and like, what does multiply? That means bringing things together or, you know, you're really using interesting concepts. And when I worked with, with Bob and I said, you know, we need to really bring this online. He's like, no, you need to bring this online. I'm done. I'm right here. So a lot of the ideas of, of making things simple and breaking it down into simple pieces that, you know, building blocks, that's how you learn to walk. You don't learn by doing sprints and marathons. You learn by little crawls and steps and and that is more powerful than running over those hurdles. So uh, getting those basic building blocks are down. But, uh, you know, I'm really happy with this the new partnership we have with an organization called Inside Track that's helping to train our fellows, our instructional coaches, to be able to use this model everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to sort of sit down with an, in an individual student and do this, but when you start to get larger groups and full classes, you have to, we, we had to find a way to take our cottage really discreet way of doing it 
and having it work for lots of coaches at the same time. So yeah. we're moving into a national model. Interesting. Or I should say more a multi-regional model. Yep. Uh, and the piece that's the most difficult is that community piece. Mm -hmm. Even working with schools about like, do you know what STEM locations are, are 10 miles from your school? Or even a mile that you could actually walk to. And it doesn't have to be some kind of high-tech science center, but, you know, the local utility has STEM things, uh, lots mm. of museums. We do stuff in San Francisco with Autodesk. The Autodesk headquarters, I haven't been there since the pandemic, however, but they, they have a headquarters in San Francisco. And they have a museum right there in the lobby that with all sorts of stuff that's free access for kids to sort of get access to and mm. learn. So finding those STEM free or almost free locations around a community is also a, an integral piece of extending the classroom and the learning environment from just the classroom. Yeah. Makes sense. It makes me think of the maker spaces and, uh, you know, even back in the day, the computer was in the library next to the terrarium with the turtle, you know, like show us right. my age, but it is wild just to think how quickly these things are changing and looking ahead, where do you see things going just generally? We're in a pretty challenging time. You've been leading this organization that in some ways, maybe there's even lessons to be learned there where your design and, and your function almost has some resilience and flexibility built in, but we're on bumpy waters. Any thoughts, just advice or ideas that are out there that are helping you Mm. They're helping either helping you keep yourself on track or or maybe could help some of our listeners stay pointed in the right direction. Yeah. Wow. That's a, oh my gosh. How much time do we have left? You know, we, when you talk about kids and, and their resilience in this modern world, there's so many ways to communicate and it really still is about distilling knowledge and knowing what knowledge is knowledge to keep and what knowledge is knowledge to discard. You know, as a kid, I read the World Book Almanac every year on Christmas Day for three months. And yeah. it was my internet, right? And, and there was some kind of beauty in not knowing things. Like, what was Mickey Mantle's batting score in 1950? Huh, I don't know. You just didn't know some things. Right. That the time of not knowing mm. is so small where you can just call on things. So, I mean, I'm really interested in, like, just how the brain is, how this sort of world is changing the new brains and neural pathways and, and what that's going to bring to the game and interested in a lot of the sort of, you know, really geeky when it comes to the biotech and, and that field. And even I've been really looking at sort of slime mold and the sort of the micro knowledge of organic animals. Interesting. So, I mean, that stuff, but. Just different forms of how knowledge is processed. Mm. You're the second. I had Bharat Krishnan and he recommended a book called An Immense World, which yes. was about that same, like how natural intelligence is a new place for us to look. Like you don't just have to look at the artificial kind. There's a lot to be learned from natural. The other one is don't get me started on fungi in under forests and how that is another form mm -hmm. of intelligence. Yes. There's definitely some deep, deep stuff, deep cuts. We'll have to, we'll have to get Jim back on again in the future to go deep on some of this stuff. The, 
Website is calcround.org. Calcround.org will include links to that and to everything we're talking about here in the show notes for the episode. It's been amazing having you on, Jim. We'd love to have you back. But as we conclude, I know you've hit on some deep thoughts and we've run the gamut a little bit. Any takeaways, closing remarks for our listeners as they head back to the rest of their lives? <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I'd love to come back. I would say, you know, I like to tell my students and community members that math is everywhere. And we sort of need, no one would ever, people say all the time, oh, I'm not a math person. But no one would say, oh, I'm not a vowel person. You No, it's ridiculous. You use it all the time. And if you can travel home on a half a tank of gas, that's algebra. You're solving for X. So we like to celebrate math in its natural and in its artificial sense. And really celebrate the fact that we're all math people. If you can walk, you've learned math. Fantastic stuff. Jim Hollis is the founder of Calculus Roundtable, calground.org. Jim, thanks again for joining me. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And for our listeners, hopefully you enjoyed as much as we did. If you did, please subscribe, share the good word, write us a review, do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.